Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast with Kareem Farah, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 45 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. I am joined by two awesome folks. We got Zach, who's often on the podcast. Zach, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Awesome. Awesome. And we have Monty, who's been on the podcast a number of times. She's an incredible Modern Classrooms implementer and mentor. Monty, how are you? I'm doing great. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back. And the reason why Monty and Zach are on is not only are they wonderful podcast guests and hosts, but they're also mentors. And the focus of today's episode is the mentor experience. The goal here really to understand what it's like for folks to be mentors, but then also what mentors are learning about what educators struggle with and find really comfortable about building out the model and starting to implement. So Zach and Monty are two of our best mentors. I was a mentor for a short period of time, but no longer mentor teachers. I actually finished mentoring my last teacher just a month ago. Um, I mean, it was super, super exciting to kind of close that out. And it has been an awesome journey. So the goal really today is to make it clear to listeners what mentors actually do and what they've learned through their experience supporting educators. So I'm going to go ahead and kick things off. Well, first, you know, Zach, can you just, I know a lot of listeners have heard your backstory. Can you just share a little bit about what you teach and the general group of educators you most commonly mentor, like what types of educators you mentor? And then I'm going to kick it to you, Monty. So Zach, can you remind listeners what you teach and, and generally the types of teachers you mentor? Absolutely. So I teach middle school music at a public charter school in, in D.C. Uh, my class, interestingly, is music in Spanish. Our school is an immersion school. So the mentees with whom I'm most frequently paired are arts teachers. So uh, music or art, visual art, theater, dance, that kind of thing. And also occasionally Spanish teachers, which is fun because that's not what I teach. And I get to learn a little bit about Spanish teaching. Um, but mostly I work with arts teachers and it, they do pose, I feel like arts classes pose an interesting challenge in terms of modern classrooms, especially performance-based, like ensemble-based classes. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really happy to, to get to work with teachers in what I consider to be some of the edge cases of modern classrooms. And, and I get to learn more about the model that way. Perfect. Thanks, Zach. And, and just so folks know, when, when Zach talks about this idea of pairing, essentially when an educator gets enrolled into a virtual mentorship program, usually through a school and district partnership, but sometimes individually, we have a little bit of an algorithm on the back end that tries to pair the teacher who's enrolling with the mentor that is going to best be able to support them. That's a combination of grade level, content area, learning management system, and all that good stuff. So Monty, can you share with the listeners a little bit about what you teach and then generally the mentors, mentees that you usually support? Uh, yeah. So I teach middle school science. And so most often than not, I get paired up with um, science teachers. And a lot of times I'm being, getting paired up with middle school science, but I've also had the pleasure of also mentoring some high school science teachers as well. Um, I also get a lot of 
math teachers, which is also really cool because math and science uh, oftentimes go together. And um, oddly enough, I've gotten quite a few history teachers as well, which I also really like um, mentoring history teachers because everybody's so vastly different in the history world. Um, And that's always fascinating to me when I get a history teacher. Awesome. Fabulous. Thank you both for kind of explaining the folks that you generally support. Now, what I first would love, just so listeners are clear on this, is for listeners to understand exactly what you all do as a mentor. Um, I just think that sometimes that can feel confusing uh, for an external listener who maybe has never been a part of it. So, Monty, can you just tell the listeners what you do as a modern classrooms project mentor? Like, what do you actually spend most of your time doing? Yeah. So the first thing that I do is once I get paired with a new mentee and just like mentees, we also fill out kind of like a survey of like our interests, who we're interested in and mentoring and things like that. Um, And we also, you know, do a process where we accept the mentee. Um, And so after I accept the mentee and we officially get paired, um, I reach out to them and I tell them a little bit about myself and I work on scheduling a mentor call with them. Um, This mentor call is really cool and one of my favorite parts of the model because we get to see each other face to face over Zoom or Google Meet. You know, I really spend my time in this call getting to know them. So I ask them, you know, what they teach, where they teach, kind of like their philosophy, why they signed up for the course, what they're hoping to get out of the course. And just really spend some time, you know, talking with them, making sure that I answer their questions um, because some of them come in with some concerns and things that they truly um, are wondering of how this could work, especially in science. From there, like after the initial um, call, then mentees start submitting their work. And so there's five assignments in the course that mentees submit. And so outside of the initial call, my time is spent, you know, reviewing um, their work and, you know, giving them feedback. And so one of my favorite assignments to truly review and get feedback on is the instructional video, because just like the coaching call, I get a time to truly see the teacher's um, teaching styles shine through because they're teaching a lesson as they would students. And I get to watch it. And I just love looking at all of the different videos of the people that I've mentored, almost 30 teachers now, and everybody's teaching style and how they design their videos and what they choose to put in their videos is also vastly different. And it's just truly fascinating to see how differently people do things, even from myself, of teaching even the same topic. And so, yeah, I, I review work and then um, I answer questions if they have any questions. Um, sometimes mentees like a second coaching call, which is really nice. And that's basically it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I too loved, it's so interesting, different mentors like uh, giving feedback on different assignments more than others. I also found the instructional videos to be super fun to review a, cause it was another Avenue to get to know a teacher, which I always thought was really fun. And B it was really cool to see just how creative educators were that comes through in other assignments as well. But there's something about the instructional video that really lets that shine. Zach, are you in the same boat by the way on, on your favorite assignment to review is the instructional video or do you actually like a different one? I do like the instructional video. I guess I also like the mastery check just as much. Um, those first two, I really like. I mean, everything that Monty said is totally spot on for me as well. The mastery check and the instructional video are kind of like the the product of lesson planning. Like that's real teacher work, you know? And I like seeing the two of them together. But I do like, I see what Monty's saying. I, I like seeing the teacher in their video doing their thing you know, they're, they're all so different and they're so wonderful in their, in their weird quirkiness. And it's really fun to watch their videos and then give feedback on them as well. Totally. And I will say a wild card assignment that can sometimes be super cool to review is the self-pacing plan. Yeah. Um, it depends on, you know, cause a lot of teachers, I would have done this 
don't want to reinvent the wheel and will just use one of the existing pacing trackers, modify it to make it their own. But every now and then I remember reviewing assignments and someone will come out with like a crazy cool game board or tracker. And I'm like, this is wild. Um, so sometimes that self-pacing plan is pretty cool. Um, well, I mean, this this kind of came through a little bit in what you shared, Monty, but you know, I do want to hear a little bit more about why both of you actually became a mentor and, and what you enjoy most about being a mentor. Zach, why don't you go ahead and start like, what inspires you most about doing this mentorship work? Well, I became a mentor because of how just impressed I was with the model in my own classroom. I mean, you remember, because when I did this training two years ago now, it was very few of us in a room with you. So we, you and I were in, you know, we were in contact quite frequently after the training. And I, I was just like, I, <laughs> I want to continue to be a part of this because the changes that I'm seeing in my students' learning are just huge. They're, it's it's amazing. And myself as the teacher in the classroom, I felt more relaxed. I felt happier. I felt like teaching was more sustainable. And I was like, this needs to be shared. And I wanted to to be on the front lines of that. And that's why I became a mentor. Um, now that I do mentor, I, I feel like the the work of mentoring is fun. I have a very a very clear sense of what types of feedback I will give in different situations now. But the wild card every time is the content that I'm getting from teachers. You know, I, I mentor teachers. I mentioned this before. I mentor teachers that aren't music teachers. I mentor teachers that teach music that's completely different from the music that I teach. And I learn their class. Like I learn things about art. I learn things about teaching. I learn things about everything. It's an eye-opening experience for me to see the different things that are happening in different, different classrooms. I love it. I love it. I mean, I, I always thought this was super, super interesting as well about the mentor experience is just the, the balance between consistency and creativity. Like everyone is aligned on the model, but there's still so much just personality and customization that comes through that makes each assignment just a little bit different and a little, little bit cool to review. What are your thoughts, Monty? Um, so I decided to do mentoring because I firmly believe in this model. And so very similar to what Zach was saying, um, when I first did this PD, I was like, wow, this is going to be revolutionary for my teaching. And then, of course, I started doing it. And, you know, I freaked out in the beginning and I had some moments where I was like, this isn't working. But by the time I got to the point where I knew that it was working, I knew that I could never go back to traditional teaching ever again. And so when I was presented with the opportunity to be a mentor, I, w- I knew that the Modern Classrooms project was like going to be a thing. And I knew that one day it was going to be big. And I was like, I have to be a part of this because when it is big, I want to be able to say I was there like when there was nobody. Um, and I-, I like that aspect of things of like being one of the first mentors and, you know, truly piloting this program and seeing that we have I don't actually know the number, but I know it's a lot right now. Um, and it's just so cool because. I feel like I'm a veteran and I get to help, you know, train new mentors. And it's just a truly great experience for me. And it helps keep me um, improving on my own practice. Um, And it's just always one of those conversation topics that I can tell people like, oh, yeah, my side gig is Modern Classroom. And, and, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of it. And I get to tell them about it. And, you know, the more you talk about it, you get to continue to get people involved. And that's like one of my favorite parts. Totally. And I mean, you really were one of the first people in it. And I think your experience actually having sort of a overwhelming beginning, as many educators do with the model, is so valuable as a mentor, right? Because like inevitably you get teachers that are frustrated, you get teachers that are overwhelmed, there are teachers that don't know if they can do it, teachers that don't know if it's going to work. Being able to speak to that experience is so powerful. So very, very cool. Um, 
it echoes the reasons why we created the mentorship program in the first place. It wasn't always just about the mentees. It's also about the mentors creating pathways for you all to actually be able to share your expertise, which kind of gets me to my next question. And then we're going to start digging into the actual experience of giving feedback. But how would you describe being a mentor as being different from other teacher leadership opportunities? And to kind of create more clarity on the question, prior to becoming a mentor, I know when I was in the classroom, the standard teacher leadership opportunity that was available to me was grade level chair. Like I was once the senior class advisor, which is the single hardest job I think I've ever done in my life because I took 60 kids across the country to Los Angeles and I will never do that again because it is so much planning. You know, those are the types of teacher leadership opportunities I was exposed to. Some fellowships here and there. Um, And then obviously, if you want to go into the actual school leader pathway, you can start pursuing things like instructional coaching, assistant principal, principal pathways. I think our mentorship program is kind of a wild card. Can you all share a little bit about why it might be different? Zach, you can go ahead and start with this uh, if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, the only teacher leadership position that I've had at my school now is to be the lead music teacher. And we were a team of two, so it wasn't a huge deal. Um, but yeah, I guess it was um, it was much more centered around the administrative aspect of being a teacher at my school, you know, aligning our curriculum, aligning vertically with the uh, the DP music curriculum, things like that. Um, very, It felt very administrative, whereas Modern Classrooms feels like we're sort of digging into the weeds of the pedagogy of each individual teacher that that brings something different to the program. And I don't necessarily feel like I'm telling teachers what to do as their mentor. I feel like a uh, sort of a second set of eyes to look over their work and a thought partner for them. Um, and I know that sounds kind of like a cliche, but the the feedback that I give is is always sort of couched as a suggestion. And it's a dialogue between me and them. If you look at our at our feedback journals, we give feedback in these Google Docs that the the mentees can edit. They can comment or even edit in the very document and they write in there, I agree with this, but you might not understand this about my class and they're they're sort of a dialogue that evolves over time. So so I take the position of of a teacher who has taught using modern classrooms but not like an expert teacher. I mean, I'm mentoring teachers who have taught for 15 years more than I have and I'm not an expert by any means, but I do have the experience of teaching this way. And I just like to consider it like a dialogue with, with other teachers, which is not necessarily how I felt as the lead music teacher, which was much more administrative. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Monty, what are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, so some of the roles that I've had is teacher leader. So I was a teacher leader as well. And then funnily enough, at the same time that I started doing the Modern Classroom Fellowship, um, I also went into a role of being science department chair. Um, And one of the things that I disliked about it is it was just very high stakes in that everything resorted to me if it felt like if teachers weren't necessarily performing the way way they were supposed to, if they weren't planned correctly, if they had any issues in class, if the STEM fair fell apart, it all went back to me and it was a reflection of me. And I didn't like that necessarily. What I really like about mentoring is, you know, 
I do consider myself a leader, but it feels like the stakes are lower. And not that that takes away from the importance of the job in any way whatsoever. But because I don't feel the same level of stress that I did when I was like department chair, I actually feel like my heart is in it a little bit more because I don't feel like anybody's going to drop the hammer down on me and say, oh my gosh, Monty, you should not have said that in that feedback journal to that person. Um, I know no one's going to do that. Um, I know that I will be approached a lot differently um, and nobody's like grading me and, or being like, oh, you're a terrible, terrible person or terrible teacher because your team is not performing well. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I really like doing this um, and why I've stuck with it so long. Yeah. You know, one of the things that this is like a little bit off topic, but that's the point of a podcast. Um, what I what I think was always really jarring to me about the way teacher leadership opportunities were structured is as you both kind of indicated, they weren't necessarily collaborative roles. They were extensions of administration. And I don't really know if that's the best way to inspire and and get educators excited and feel like they're growing. It That feels like kind of a way to groom someone into at some point taking on formal leadership in like a sort of AP instructional coach principal capacity, which speaks to a much larger frustration I see in the industry in general, which is that teachers feel like the only way that they can feel valued and grow within the profession is to actually just become a school or district leader, which is categorically different than what they do. And if they love teaching, they want to stay in the classroom. So one of the things I love about the mentorship program is you all get to mentor teachers. You get to get paid for that. You get to collaborate with educators across the country and the world and still do what you love every single day, which is teach. And I think that's something that's so core to what we do. And it comes through in the way you all talk about it, because it's like a really powerful way to collaborate and share your expertise with folks outside of your small locus of control in your school community, potentially, and feel like you're doing something that's consistent with what you love to do in the classroom, which is really create powerful instructional materials, teach students and give feedback. And that's essentially what you do. So I'm, I'm glad that comes through in the way you all think about it. And it's kind of the goal of our organization is to scale the model, but also empower educators to feel like they can continue to teach, continue to do the amazing things they do in the classroom, not have to leave the classroom to take on a leadership role, but still be able to support educators. So I think it's super cool. Yeah, I, I want to add also, because Monty mentioned the the low stakes, right? The not Not feeling pressured from from the top down as teachers, we, we want autonomy. And as mentors, you all give us a lot of autonomy, uh, which is great. I think that there are so many different ways to implement the modern classrooms model. And there are so many different ways that are all equally effective. Uh, and we're, you give us a lot of trust. I mean, there's, there's clear guidance on what, what kind of feedback to give. Right. And we all teach using the model. Um, but I really appreciate the autonomy that we get to give feedback that, is coming from ourselves authentically as, as teachers and as mentors. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to this, this core idea of when you trust educators um, to innovate and, you know, you provide obviously clear guardrails um, you see some of the most powerful work happen and the same kind of applies to students. And it's a pretty amazing thing, which is that when you really just empower folks to be their true selves and, and to invest deeply in the things that they believe in, it's when the most powerful action happens. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, to watch the mentorship program play out because we just trust you all so much to be able to coach teachers effectively and folks review the mentorship program and particularly working with a mentor so high. It's crazy. Like we'll even get some reviews sometimes that'll critique the course itself, like the way that 
the course was structured or how my voice sounded or my videos. But every time it's like, but I loved working with my mentor. So the impact you all make is pretty fabulous. Um, I want to dig in now to actually the feedback you all give. And in particular, the roadblocks you see educators run into when they're trying to complete these assignments. Because I want listeners to really be able to feel and think about what the challenges are, the the hard and the easier parts of executing each of these assignments. Now, for everyone listening who has never done the mentorship program, there's five assignments. The first assignment's the mastery check. So you're picking a lesson that you're going to be teaching and you're creating the mastery check for it. Next, you build the instructional video. That's assignment number two, and that would relate to the mastery check. So if your mastery check is on osmosis, your instructional video is on osmosis. The next one is the self-pacing plan. That's when you start to take a little bit of a higher level picture and say, like, what is the pacing track I plan to use in this classroom for this entire unit? How am I classifying my lessons? And how am I going to think about motivation and collaboration in my classroom? The next piece is learning design. That's where you're starting to think about how you're going to organize your learning management system, whichever one you're using, as well as the physical space in your classroom. And then the final submission, where basically you take the feedback you've received on the first four submissions and then replicate it so that you complete a final submission with three complete lessons, as well as all the overarching components, the learning design plan, the self-placing plan, the strategies for collaboration motivation. So that's the outline of the five assignments that people complete. So what we're going to do now is actually go through each and just get some guidance from Monty and Zach about some of the challenges that most commonly pop up for each. So let's start with the mastery check. I'm going to start with you, Monty. When you review mastery checks, what are the most consistent pieces of feedback that you tend to give on mastery checks? Um, I actually think really for the mastery check, there's just one thing that I'm normally just adding to my feedback for mentees. And it's, you know, the the comment about like making some sort of criteria for so for students to understand how they're being graded. I feel like one of the really important things in this model is the transparency that you give to students, the student choice that you give to them. And I think it's really important to communicate to them how they're going to be graded on their mastery check. And so oftentimes I just pop in a comment about, hey, you might want to consider creating some sort of checklist or criteria that they can use so that, you know, we can teach them to be reflectors and they can look and they can grade themselves before they even turn it in. Um, and I think that's really the biggest piece of advice that I give to people when I'm reviewing the master check assignment. Yeah, I love it. And, and it is really a, is like a comment you leave. And it's kind of something that educators can aspire to do over time is my experience. Because, you know, when I first launched the model, that was probably my weakest element is like criteria. I was kind of just like grading the mastery checks on the fly. I knew the math and I was like, I can just kind of do this. But over time, I started to have much more, more coherent picture of like what it meant to master the skill and what I needed to see in the mastery check. And it was a much smoother experience. So that's really fascinating. Zach, what about you on the mastery checks? Yeah, Monty, that's a really fantastic point. Um, It's not the feedback that I most commonly give, but I would add to that, that it's not just for the students. You know, the teacher also needs to have a clear sense of what is mastered and what is not mastered when a student submits work and having those criteria for mastery clarify the the workflow for the teacher as well. Um, So that's a really great point, Monty. What I would say is the most common feedback that I give is that the mastery check is covering too much content. And I'm really glad that the mastery check is now the first assignment that our mentees do, because if they have two or three skills that are all being assessed in a single mastery check, it probably means that their instructional video is going to be too long. And so I'll tell them, you might want to break this up into two completely separate lessons which would each get their own mastery check and their own instructional video. 
uh, before going on to make the video because this is gonna this, the scope of this is too big and you can chunk it down into smaller skills or, or individual concepts or skills, which would facilitate the students learning because learning a single skill at a time is is easier and also facilitate developing those criteria for mastery right like if there's secretly two or three skills in the in the lesson and you're just assessing one of them but the others affect whether they can do the the skill correctly it might be harder to tell if a student has actually mastered something and and so i would say breaking down the the mastery check or the lesson scope into smaller pieces is the most common feedback that i give yeah no i that's i mean both are super interesting and certainly things I ran into. The other thing I often would run into, which I think is kind of connected to your Zach, but a little bit different, is just the importance of being ready for reassessment. Every now and then I would get a submission and it would be one really good mastery check, but my open question would be like, what happens if the student doesn't master this? So really having a plan for that. Sometimes it's it's a method for them to actually fix the mastery check, but a lot of times it's about creating multiple copies. So uh, I think we actually just hit the three most common for sure, which is, do you have an effective way to evaluate the mastery check? Is your mastery check actually the right size so that it's efficient and effective? And do you have a way to actually get them reassessed? So perfect. Um, let's move on to the instructional video, the flashy assignment, as I always say, because it's the thing that stresses people out the most and can feel the most kind of wild, but ultimately isn't necessarily the most r- exciting part of the actual instructional experience, which oftentimes is the self-pacing side, the mastery-based grading side. So what are you all most commonly giving feedback on in the instructional video? Zach, why don't you start this time? Sure. Usually it has to do with the amount of text on the screen. Um, I mentioned this last week when we talked about using a tablet, uh, remember somebody asked that question about what tech to buy. And I think that using live annotations is a great way to replace text on the screen. And I think that it's really important for there to be movement on the screen at all times. So if you just have static text in your video, it kind of gets monotonous to look at, even if it's like super exciting and there's pictures and stuff. I think it's important for there to be movement in the videos and live annotations are sort of a cheat for that because you don't need to animate anything. You don't need to, you know, put in videos or anything like that. You can just write in the the words that were going to be there anyway and you achieve that movement on the screen. And so if there's just a bunch of static text, I would say that that's the most common uh, critique I have of my mentee's instructional videos. Monty, what are your thoughts here? For me, in science especially, I think the one thing that my mentees always struggle with is keeping the video short. Because science isn't necessarily based on skills, but more on like content. And like, you know, we typically take that content and write it into an objective. A lot of times you can have an objective that's like, oh, we you need to know the parts and the function of, of the proton and neutron and electron, which is like a really big topic. And so a lot of times they try to fit that all into one video. And then, you know, they email me and they're like, oh my gosh, I had such a hard time keeping the video short. And before I knew it, it was like nine and a half minutes, which like realistically nine and a half minutes, it still hits that 10 minute mark that we like to say to keep it under. But we also know that nine and a half minutes for anybody is long. I myself tend to zone out after like three and a half, if I'm being completely honest. Um, So very similar to what Zach was saying earlier, it's like really important to make sure that we're splitting up our objectives and making sure that we're not taking on too much at a time um, because your videos can end up long. And then kind of couple with that, I think a lot of my mentees too, especially the ones who are not used to making instructional videos, they get so caught up on wanting it to be perfect. And so they spend 
like over an hour on one video. And they're like, oh my gosh, this took me forever because I had to record it five times. And, you know, you know, and I, and I, and obviously where I am now and I've made like probably close to 50 instructional videos, I'm like, eh, it's fine. Just like keep moving. But I know in the beginning, I myself also struggle with, you know, keeping it short and making sure that trying to make it perfect. And now I'm just like, it's okay if it's a little imperfect. Cause like your kids actually don't care. Um, they actually find it funny when you make a mistake. Totally. I love that last one. It's, it's definitely the most common thing I gave feedback on because every single feedback journal I think I ever wrote in, if I gave feedback, almost every time I'd be like, do not re-record this video. I mean, sometimes I'd say this requires a re-record because I just reviewed like a 22-minute video. But usually I'm giving feedback and I'm like, you don't need to re-record this. This is just stuff to pay attention to moving forward. When I was reviewing videos, I'd say the only other thing that I would commonly gave feedback on is when you're talking, there all should, should be something going on in the screen. One of the things I would often see is I'd be watching a video and the screen would be stagnant and the teacher would be talking but nothing was actually moving or happening on the screen. And, and that was always a red flag for me that that's kind of just like an auditory experience. Isn't going to be all that engaging for students. If this is a podcast, Kareem. Forget that. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But there's a back and forth, Zach. There's a back and forth. Um, <laughs> yeah. Of course, I'm just kidding. I completely agree with you. This is what I was saying too. There needs to be movement on the screen in an instructional video. It's not an auditory medium. So the next one is self-pacing plan. This is a really interesting assignment because it has so many different parts. Um, what is the most common feedback you all give on the self-pacing plan? I think for me with the self-pacing plan is one of, one of the things that um, mentees really struggle with. And for me, it's like not specific to a content is they truly struggle with breaking down their content into what is truly the most important. And then what else is just extra that as educators were like, Oh, this is really cool. So in a traditional class, I have my students do it because I need to fill the time. Um, and so when it comes to the self-pacing plan, especially, sometimes everything is a must-do. Like, they, they got to do everything. And my first question to them is, okay, but what about your students that work slower? What happens if they truly fall behind and, like, all eight of these assignments or all eight of these lessons are required? How, what is your plan to get them caught up? Because part of the reason why we like to sprinkle in the should-do and the aspire-to-do tasks or lessons is to help propel those students that work a little bit faster while also making sure that it's an equitable experience for your students that work a little bit slower to make sure that they're still getting the core content. That's a really good point that I definitely ran into all the time. Zach, what about you? Yeah, I agree. Helping my mentees to understand the purpose of an Aspire to, what, what Monty was mentioning, that sort of like dual purpose of helping our students who excel and work quickly and then the students who may struggle and work more slowly. Um, the Aspire to serves both of them. I would also add, you know, I think the self-pacing plan, or the, the pacing tracker itself is probably one of the best taught parts of the, the mentorship uh, experience because there's so many exemplars and all of my mentees always come up with really cool ideas for their pacing trackers, their progress trackers. But I think that as Monty was saying, and as, as I mentioned, like a lot of them miss the miss the mark in terms of classifying their lessons to really facilitate self-pacing. And I think also a lot of them overlook the importance of, or, or even the reason why those collaboration and motivation strategies are included in the self-pacing module, which doesn't exactly seem intuitive at first. But if you think about self-pacing and having data on students' pace as they work through a unit, 
that gives the teacher a lot of really fantastic opportunities to get kids collaborating in unique ways. And I say unique, I mean, to a modern classroom, like in ways that you might not have had the data to, to encourage in a traditional model, because you can see all the kids who are on lesson three, you can see all the kids who are behind, you can see all the kids who are ahead, you can group them in different ways based on that data. And motivation comes from the patient tracker as well. So I think that putting a little bit more thought into the collaboration and motivation uh, opportunities that come from a pacing tracker is another piece of feedback that I give frequently. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, you know, I want to go back to the one that Monty mentioned, because I know this one resonates for you too, Zach, which is this idea that teachers have been conditioned to feel like they're a failure if every kid doesn't do every single thing. And that creates so much stress for teachers, but then ultimately leads to a ton of stress for students. If you go into a year saying there's 90 science skills that we need to learn this year, and the expectation is that every kid is going to master all 90 of those skills in the exact same amount of time over the course of that year, regardless of prerequisite skills, regardless of what goes in their lives, regardless of the trauma they may experience or the truancy challenges that they may face, it's kind of like the most crazy expectation you could ever have. But you kind of see the fact that this expectation has been placed on teachers so consistently when you give feedback on that assignment, because every teacher feels so attached to every single lesson needing to be a must do. So I think that's a really interesting observation that I hear consistently from mentors and just important for everyone to kind of internalize, which is that it's okay if every kid doesn't master every single thing. Like that's not really what the learning experience is about. Yeah, you know, Kareem, I've been having a lot of discussions with my summer institute mentees who are doing the self-pacing plan like right now. And, you know, it's funny. Another piece of common feedback that I give on pacing trackers is not to put due dates on every lesson. And it's for that reason. I think teachers think, you know, my students are going to be working more slowly. Like if we're if we're going to give them the time that they need to learn this, they won't get to the end. And my response is always, but if you were teaching a new lesson every day, it doesn't guarantee that the student was learning the new lesson every day. Like they might be learning less. They might be learning the same. They might be with you. They might not. You don't know. But at least with a pacing tracker, you can see the students who are falling behind and you can support them. Totally. It's totally true. It's totally valid. I just hope teachers don't put too much pressure on themselves to hit every single thing with every kid. And just as you said, teaching it is not the same thing as learning it. Um, And folks need to make sure that that's kind of at the forefront of how they approach the learning experience for sure. Okay, the last like new assignment, because then the last one's the final submission, and it's the learning design plan. Um, Super curious, because this is one of the newer assignments. Um, Monty, what is the most common feedback you give on the learning design plan? You know, I I think for this assignment especially, it's it's so interesting because I'm never actually giving any like actual critiques or like, oh, you might want to consider this. It's really me just like looking at me like, you know, this is really good. But I think the, the reason why I like the learning design plan is because one, not only have I learned about a bunch of different like learning management systems, like I had never heard of Schoology or Seesaw or some of these other ones that, you know, people are coming in using. But I also think it's interesting to kind of see the different ways in which people are laying out their assignments. I do think the one thing, though, that especially when it comes to like Canvas or Google Classroom, which I do have some experience with, is that oftentimes we're just bombarding students with a lot of information at one time or we're presenting things where um, 
I feel like one of like one of my mentees, for example, uh, had like all units, all like every assignment from every unit for the whole year. And so by April, it was just like so overwhelming, like eye catching wise, even for me as an adult. And so I think the biggest thing that I see with Canvas and Google Classroom, especially is just the way in which we're organizing our things. It's always very interesting to see that how people are doing it differently. But I would say if there was one piece of advice to give to people about it is less is more. And it's okay. If like everything is not showing at one time, it is totally okay. Your students are not missing out because if they feel overwhelmed looking at it, they're most likely not going to like do the thing. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. It is like the biggest thing I tell folks about a learning management system. You want it to literally be as intuitive as humanly possible. Like you have to actually behave in an odd way to not know what to do next is what I always tell folks. But it's dangerous because those tools have so many bells and whistles that it's so easy to be like, but I want to do this and add a GIF here and make it look like this. So I totally hear you on that. The same applies to the physical space. I mean, there's a lot of really creative and cool things I've seen teachers do in the physical space that are amazing. But I always tell folks to start with the core idea of like, if you put a student in here and you told them to go find lesson one, what would be the most logical place for them to go? Um, and making sure that they kind of execute it that way. Zach, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, Monty hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I don't have that much to add. The only thing that I would add is that in in addition to simplicity, I think linearity, and you were sort of hinting at this, Kareem, like there should be one path to follow. I think that it's it's really important in terms of the LMS to basically lay out a path for the student to follow and then not be sending them around the LMS trying to find the materials they need to do for today's lesson or for the lesson that they're on, because that just adds sort of a cognitive load of navigating the work that is taking away from the effort they should be putting into the actual work, right, into actual learning. And so making a linear path through the LMS is something that I really look out for on um, this assignment. And you did mention that's one of the newer assignments and, you know, we've only really reviewed submissions from this assignment during the pandemic. And I'm really excited to see more teachers who are actually planning on teaching in physical spaces come up with, with new like learner design plans, because this is not something that I have much experience with. And I'm really excited to see the ways that my mentees lay out their actual classrooms. Agreed. The physical space one is totally underrated. That is a totally new part of our uh, mentorship program is basically in the past that we used to have a learning management system section, but we never had the one where you actually had to really think hard about the physical space. I'm so excited for that to be a part of the experience because as you all know, as, as implementers, like using the space correctly is, a, it can be a game changer. Um, particularly about thinking about where students take mastery checks, where they're collaborating, super powerful. So I'm glad to see that that's actually in the mentorship program and you all enjoying seeing it. Cause I think it's really critical. Uh, on the final submission, I mean, do you all have any thoughts on this one? Because I know in, in general, the final submission is essentially a replication of what folks did in the prior four assignments, just adding on a couple more lessons and making sure they've made any revisions and changes. Any thoughts on how this one plays out? Is there anything that stands out for this particular assignment? It's just always really cool with this assignment to see, you know, some of the changes that they've made just through the conversations that you've had together or you know, you can tell that they've actually read your feedback because sometimes it feels like, you know, you do all this work and you write all this feedback. And then, you know, it's like, is anybody actually reading what I'm writing? 
Um, and so it's always really nice in the culminating um, unit plan to see some of the feedback incorporated um, when they submit their videos for like lessons two or lessons three. You can also see some small changes. Um, sometimes they sound more confident, which is always really cool. Or they've like tried to do something a little bit differently, um, just completely based on um, experience and just conversations that they may have had with you or somebody else like related to the model. And so that's just always really cool for me, especially. Love it. I love it. It's super, super cool. Um, one of the things that I want to ask both of you all is thinking about the coolest thing you've experienced as a mentor. Like, what is one of those things that you saw, reviewed, learned, and you were just like, wow, this is amazing? And the reason why I asked this is because I remember mentoring and being a learner myself. Like, so often opening up assignments, being, I didn't know that. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you, you could make a video that way. And just learning myself. So I'm going to start with you, Zach. What is the coolest submission or thing that you've experienced as a mentor? So you sort of mentioned this before. I have the privilege of working with art teachers who make very cool pacing trackers. My pacing tracker is, it's super functional. Like it's, it's, a, it's a Google Sheets spreadsheet and it's not super pretty. Uh, it works great for my class because that's how I made it. But the pacing trackers that I get from some of the arts teachers that I work with are just incredible. And um, I, I just love seeing that like artistic thinking applied to a functional document that students actually use. And, you know, because they're art teachers, they get this stuff. I don't like they know how to make it really visually obvious what to do. And it's some of the coolest stuff I've seen. I think that I can put some of them in the show notes, uh, examples of game boards that are really, really cool. I love it. I love it. Monty. And I think for me, um, I have seen some really cool progress trackers and I find myself being like, this is really cool. But I think for me especially is I'm a huge fan of HyperDocs. And so whenever I post my work, I always use a HyperDoc. And so one of the things I really like is when people have these really amazing HyperDocs and I'm like, yo, did you create that yourself? Like, where'd you get this? Like, what, how? Um, and I find myself sometimes emailing them like, can I make a copy of this? Because like, I might want to use this in the future. Um, and it's just always really nice to look at how people do their HyperDocs, um, which I know sounds really nerdy, but it's, it's so cool. Yeah, no, I, I think those are super cool as well. I would say for me, back when we launched the mentorship program, there were a whopping two mentors. That would be myself and my co-founder, Rob Barnett. So we mentored like teachers across all content areas and grade levels. And I remember I at pretty much the same time was mentoring a PE teacher and a visual arts teacher. And the PE teacher's instructional video was them actually doing the activities, which I thought was super, super cool. So I was like watching like a true workout video. I'm sitting there being like, I got to learn these skills. And then simultaneously, the same thing was going on in the visual arts where I open up the video and it is the teacher with a canvas, like placing the camera perfectly, showing different techniques on the canvas. And I was like, this is so incredibly awesome. Um, and I learned a ton just watching the videos myself about the actual skills. So very cool. Um, this is something I've been doing at the end of podcasts quite frequently. So I know, Zach, you've been asked this question. I want to make sure I ask it to Monty before we close out today. If you could tell a teacher who's just starting to engage with our model anything at all, what would it be? I would say don't stress yourself out over evaluations. 
Um, because, and I say this because the one question most recently, um, and I worked in public school this year, so I completely understand why people ask it. But the one question I've been asked the most this past year is, well, how does this fit in with evaluations? How do I prepare my administrator for this? Um, et cetera. And I would say, don't let your evaluation stress you out. If like you're a rock star at this, which you will be, your administrator is going to see that you're a rock star and they're going to see that your kids are like on task and they're going to see like 98% of your kids working, which in my traditional class, it was never that high. Um, and your evaluations are going to be amazing anyway. So I say, just do it. Don't stress and like, be great. I love it. Innovate and ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> I know that uh, Monty's giving that suggestion because she has certainly needed that feedback herself. Um, <laughs> yes. I remember giving that very same feedback to Monty just a couple years ago, um, watching her classroom and it was brilliantly constructed and beautiful to watch, but she was panicked about evaluations. I don't blame her. It's a super tense and overwhelming thing. Um, but as she said, the classroom will speak for itself. If kids are engaged, if kids are connected, if kids are collaborating, if kids are learning, admin will understand that and will appreciate the model. So super, super cool. Thank you both for jumping on. By the way, if folks are wondering how you become like Monty and Zach and actually become a mentor, well, to start, you got to do the model. Um, you got to actually learn it. And it's not a requirement to learn it through the virtual mentorship program. I want to stress that. I mean, both Monty and Zach came through a fellowship program back when we had a fellowship program years ago. Some mentors came just through the free course. What we actually care about is just that you're implementing the model. The first thing you have to do is become a distinguished modern classroom educator, which anyone can apply for. Currently, we're taking a little bit longer to review Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator credential applications. You can access them on our website. Um, and essentially, you have to submit a fairly brief portfolio of your work um, with a narrative associated with it. This just tells us that you're doing the model and then having artifacts associated with it. We review those usually monthly in the summer. Anyone who applies in the summer, you'll find out by the end of September just because we're focused on the Summer Institute at the moment. Once you become a Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator, we call them DMCEs, then you become eligible to apply to be a mentor. So we do not actually convert uh, just an educator to become a mentor. You have to be a DMCE first. So if that's if folks are wondering how you become a mentor, that's the process. If you have any questions, you can certainly reach out to us through our website or just go on the website and just click on credentials and you'll learn more about the Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator credential. Um, Zach, Monty, as usual, thanks for jumping on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Of course. Of course. And you can always learn about our model, www.modernclassrooms.org. Our social media tags are at Modern Class Proj and our free courses at learn.modernclassrooms.org. Bye, everyone. We'll be back at it next week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. And you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj. That's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.